who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he said he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O oh Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is strong for him? The poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and arouse yourself from my vindication, from my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. And say evermore, great is the Lord who delivers, who delights excuse me, in the welfare of his servants. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. We have in front of us a very uh, troubling passage. And we don't need to deny the troubles it presents to us. You heard it, didn't you? This doesn't sound altogether Christian. It doesn't sound to match. It doesn't sound like it matches the spirit of Jesus in Matthew 5. When he tells them, when your enemies are against you, do good to them. What David's doing here is praying against his enemies. He's praying that God destroys them. And our Christian ears perk up and say, now wait a minute, Carl. That's not, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. These psalms, there's a collection of them known as imprecatory psalms. Psalms of imprecation. Psalms of vindication. Psalms calling on the wrath of God to fall on people, we might say. And in these psalms, we find a very troubling position. There's other examples. Let's look at a couple of them. I, I won't go through all of them, but there are many. Look at Psalm 40. We'll handle this in a few weeks. Psalm 40, verses 14 and 15. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those... Be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! That's the uh, Hebrew expression for uh, 
hatred and mocking and jeering of another, of an opponent. Psalm 56. Psalm 56, another example of this type of literature in the Psalms. Psalm 56, verse 7. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. Psalm 70, verses 2 and 3. This is not just one place. This is not just one passage. This is a group of passages. Psalm 70, verses 2 and 3. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! We see the same theme throughout. Psalm 79. Verse 6. Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. It's interesting that Asaph picks this theme of the kingdom of God up and he says, if you're not in the kingdom of God, I pray that God's wrath falls on you. And that again is kind of offensive to our Christian ears. But I ask you this, what's the difference in what Asaph says in Psalm 79 verse 6 and what Jesus says in the Lord's prayer, the model prayer when he says let thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean other than if you're not in the kingdom of God what Jesus is saying is that you will be destroyed that your kingdom will fall and God's kingdom will rise. Psalm 109 verses 6 through 15. I want you to see this throughout the psalm. It's not one located passage, one weak moment where David spills over into human sin or wrath. But this is throughout the psalms. If we're going to assign them away as non-scriptural, we've got a lot of things to do here. We've got a lot of things to undo. Psalm 109, verse 6 through 15. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accursor stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. You don't get more, uh, more uh, uh, affront than that, a greater affront than that. Let his children grow up without a daddy and his wife be without a husband. He continues. May his children... In case you think it's just against the father. In verse 10 he says, May his children wander about and beg, seeking food from the ruins they inhabit. Total destruction. That's what David's praying for. Absolute destruction. Children walking through rubbled cities, looking for bread, picking it out of the trash, and stealing it from the dogs. That's what he's talking about. He's praying that God will do this. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that He may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Not the exact prayer you want your pastor praying over you, is it? <laughs> Psalm 139. We look at one more. There's, there's more, but I, I just want to get a gathering of them. Psalm 139. One of those famous passages that we read all of the time. And we tend to stop before we get to this point. With the search me and know me, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And then in verse 19, he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete Hatred. I count them my enemy. Powerful words. Hating someone. Search me, O God, 
and know my heart. That is a cry of a man who believes he has not sinned. You would not ask God to search your heart if you thought what you had just said in the previous stanza was sinful. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David's prayer at the end of Psalm 139 is that God would lead him, continue to lead him. I believe what he's saying there is search me and know me that I'm not in sin when I pray that I hate these that hate you. It's interesting these passages that we have. Some have said, as I've hinted to and alluded to, you know, we just don't need to believe that these are inspired. This is the heart of a man who, though he's godly, he is sinful. And what God's recording for us are the sinful prayers of a sinful man. These are not being held out to us as exemplary on any terms. Even one of the great commentators on the Psalms, Peter Craigie, makes this statement. These prayers are the natural response to evil. But then he goes further and says, these are not the oracles of God. It's not just in the Old Testament that we have this kind of literature in the Bible. I don't want you to go off thinking, well, you know, it's easy to believe that the Old Testament's also that way because that God's a bad God. He does bad things to lots of people. I, hey, preacher, I've read Joshua in 1 and 2 Kings, and I've seen what he did to whole cultures of people. He's a bad dude. I'm glad he's in the Old Testament. We got the new God in the New Testament. God doesn't leave you that out because it's the same God in the Old New Testament. Now, I want to show you some things in the New Testament that will bring this to light. Look with me at Luke 10. Turn over to Luke 10. Yeah, you're going to need your turning fingers this morning. We're, de- we're going to get to the passage, but I want to deal with this idea because it's so uh, difficult for us to hear this kind of talk, this kind of prayer in our day. Because we live in an effeminate, passive culture. You understand that? We live in a culture where men act like women. And because of it, women have to act like men. God is not soft, and God is not the kid on the playground that gets picked on and bullied. That's not our God. And these passages show us the beauty of God in a very contrasting way to what we like to focus on, which is His overwhelming mercy and love and graciousness. We like to hang out there. We like to use John's definition of God in his letter when he says God is love. We like that. We like to twist that and pervert it and make it all about romanticism and all about effeminate, uh, passive Love, and that's not what it is. Luke 10, verse 10, Jesus says, listen to this. This is Jesus. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we will wipe off against you. That's some preachers. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Wiping off the dust from your feet is not them trying to clean their shoes. It's them pronouncing judgment against that city that rejects the gospel. He says, I tell you, it will be better, more bearable on that day for what? For Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment than Tyre and Sidon, capital cities of the most pagan Gentile nations that oppressed the people of Israel for years, than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears You hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, that's powerful. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Paul, speaking to the Christians at Galatia, says to them, 
talking about these people who came presenting another gospel that's not really the gospel. He says, but even, in verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, accursed, cut off. He pronounces a judgment on them for false teaching. Galatians 5, verse 12, he continues in this same letter. He says at the end of this argument about those who Christ has set free and then those who have come in and undone or tried to undo the preaching of the gospel. This is what he says. I wish, in the Greek that means, if I have my way, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Imprecation. Statement of judgment. Statement of hatred towards these men. I mean, it's not just in the Old Testament, folks. It's in the New. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. No wonder the world around us doesn't like the Apostle Paul all that much. He was a man's man. First Corinthians chapter 16, verses 21 through 22. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. There's that same word again. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is a great one because surrounding his statement of judgment is all this talk of love. He says, look, I love you. You are the people of God. I love you. But let me tell you, if you're not the people of God, I want you to be anathematized. I want you to be cut off. I want you to be accursed if you try to take people away from the household of God. Paul didn't pity the fool. Second Timothy. Yeah, that was an 80s joke. I know, that's bad. I'm getting to be an old man. All the young folks said, what is that? And then they see the movie and they say, what's Mr. T doing in that movie? 2 Timothy 4, verse 14. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Alexander, the coppersmith, stood against Paul. Did him great harm, and he prayed, God, take out your vengeance on him. It's the smattering of the New Testament, but I want to turn back because I know some of you say, well, you know, that one thing Jesus said, that kind of sits in a category by itself because Jesus, all he did, he just walked around talking about love all the time. He could, he, he could have starred in a perk commercial. His hair was all silky and clean, and he was just so beautiful looking, and, and he was white like us. That's the Jesus some of us have created in our mind. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, uses some of the strongest language of judgment in all the Bible toward those who were his opponents. Matthew 23, verse 13. And we're going to do several verses. I'm not going to read all this chapter. I could read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read it in parts here. Look what he says in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. 23. Jesus wasn't too worried about building a crowd, was he? 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, those first things, without neglecting the others. You blind God straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Yes, Jesus. Verse 27. Let me skip down just a little. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous but to others, but him within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 28. 
Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. This is Jesus to his opponents. You are serpents, brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? That's the way Jesus talks to his opponents. Matthew 26, Jesus, speaking of Judas, quotes Psalm 41, verses 8 through 10. Psalm 41, which we also will handle in the last Sunday of our study of the first book of the Psalms, verses 8 through 10 says, They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friends, in whom I trusted, who hate my bread, has lifted his heel against, against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Now he quotes that, Jesus does, he quotes that in Precatory Psalm in Matthew 26, verses 23 and 24. He says, by the way, directly to Judas. He who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written to him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. He quotes Psalm 41, 8 through 10 in a, in a way to tell them that this is my betrayer. He uses this psalm. So before you start saying these psalms are not God's word, you got to deal with the fact that Jesus quoted them. you got to deal with that. Okay? Not just Jesus, but Peter in Acts. Last, last example. I know, you're tired of turning. You're used to being in Grace Fellowship. We stay in one passage all the time. But I need to build the case here because this is a place where Christians are going to face attack. Oh, yeah, all those contradictions in the Bible. What you're going to hear them bring out are these psalms. You're going to say, see, that's contradictory to Jesus saying that you should be at peace and that you should turn the other cheek and that you should do good to your enemies. That's that, that's that enmity with that. You shouldn't believe that. That shows flaws in the Bible. And what I'm showing you is these are not flaws. Hopefully by the end of the day you say, those aren't flaws. That's, that's God's word, and it's true. Peter says in Acts 1, verse 20, when they're trying to choose the replacement for Judas, he quotes for them Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 combined together. Two psalms of imprecation or of judgment, of wrath, and he quotes them. Verse 20, he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So on that basis, they selected another apostle to take his place. He quoted these Psalms approvingly, not disapprovingly. He didn't excuse them away and say, Oh, well, that's just man's flaws coming through in the Holy Scriptures. That's not really what God would say. Peter quotes them as the words of God. Jesus quotes them as the words of God. Paul quotes them as the words of God. We need to deal with them as the words of God. Now, how do we explain these prayers? How do we explain them? You need to write this down. First of all, these prayers are not personal prayers of vengeance from David asking for personal vindication. Uh, personal vindictiveness, I'm sorry. They are prayers for vindication on God's behalf. They're not personal prayers for God to sick the people who are against David. They are prayers prayed that God would be vindicated over all of his enemies. That's the first thing. Secondly, secondly, these prayers are based on God's promise in the Scriptures to act justly. To bring judgment and justice to those who have done wrong. And to bring justice, to bring judgment on those who have done wrong. To bring justice to those who have been wronged. God himself promises that. And so these prayers are modeled after God's promise. Thirdly, they come from a true hatred of sin. David in these Psalms displays a hate for sin that we aren't in connection with. We don't hate sin this much. We kind of wink at it and excuse it away. 
And this displays the hatred that God has for sin. And David is rightly expressing the hatred that he personally has for sin. Fourth, they are, they are uh, here so that we might see God's desire for justice. They are put in the scriptures that we might see that God has a desire for justice. Fifth, David is the king of Israel. And so when he prays these prayers, he prays not as a private citizen, but he prays as the leader of the people of God. And he prays holding the office that typifies for us Christ's kingship. So when David is praying these prayers against his enemies, he is taking on the robe and cloak of Jesus Christ, and he's praying against those who hate God. Notice in all of them, it's not just that they hate David. What do they hate? They hate God. And so David's asking God to act and to, in a sense, to vindicate his own name. John Piper says it best. He says that Paul gives us a good example of how we can use the imprecatory psalms. I lied. You need to go to Romans, 8, uh, Romans 15. I'm sorry. I know I said I wouldn't make you turn to another passage. But I, this, is, this is the best explanation. Psalm 69 is quoted by, by Paul in Romans 15. And Psalm 69, verse 9 says, For zeal for, those, for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's what Psalm 69, 9 says. Now, Paul in Romans 15 says... We, had, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and, do not, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul quotes this imprecatory passage in Psalm 69.9 as the words of Jesus himself. And that's the sixth way for us to understand these prayers. These are the prayers of Jesus himself. David is the mouthpiece of Jesus in the Old Testament to say what Jesus is saying. If you're against God, if you're against God's people, and you remain in that rebellion, you will be judged. These prayers are prayed in a very high priestly way. Now we look at our psalm, Psalm 35, and we see that it breaks down pretty neatly. The first three verses are introductory. The next verses, verses 4 through 10, tell us that, um, tell us that, that there is a, um, a courtroom scene going on, a prosecution uh, is happening. Excuse me, a, a, a war is going on in 4 through 10. And then verses 11 through 18, he turns his idea to that of one who's being tried in a court of law and being lied against in this, in this uh, court. And then in the final verses, 19 through 28, is the relief or the, the ending of the conflict. The two are brought together and they both are resolved in God. They're both, both the war and the false trial are resolved in God being the deliverer. And I want to teach this to you quickly. All of that other stuff was introduction. All right, now, now we exposit this passage, this one passage. But all of that will be necessary for you because when we read this passage, your mind should be firing off. This sounds so odd. This is not anything accustomed to what I'm used to seeing. Okay, and so I lay the groundwork so I can say this. First of all, there is a real spiritual battle going on between God's people and the people of this world. It wasn't just true in David's day. It's true in our day. There's a real war going on. And you are combatants in that war. Hear this closely. You are either on God's side, in God's army, struggling against the powers and principalities and, and the forces of this present age. Or you are a combatant on the side of this world against God. No one is in the middle. No one is... Uh, the Sweden or Switzerland of this day. No one is at peace with everybody. There is no neutral territory. There is a war going on. Hear me this. And you are in it. 
Either you are on God's side or you are fighting against God. And David recognizes that in the first verses 4 through 10. David recognizes the schemes of his enemy. Verse 7, he says, For without cause they hid their net for me, and they dug a pit for my life. They had a scheme against him. And the scheme against him was to trap him in a net or in a pit. This was a common way to do battle in the, in the Old Testament days. You would go up into the, uh, to the area of the rocks and the cliffs, and you would dig pits, and you would cover them over, make them look natural. And so that when someone was coming on you, those that were being pursued would run towards the pit. And they would go beside or around or over the pit, and the enemy would go into the pit. When he fell in the pit, you cut his head off. What these enemies had done was they had dug these pits, and they had said, David will pursue us, and when he does, he will fall in there. Or you would put a net, and the net would trap your enemy so that he's defenseless. He's bound up. He can't fight. And now you just end it all right there. David recognized the schemes of his enemies. And listen to me, if you're on God's side, if you're in God's army, you need to recognize the schemes and the plans that are laid against you in this world. Don't be ignorant walking around like there's nothing going on. There is a war going on. The worst thing you can do as a believer is not know it. You will walk into the trap unknowingly. Some of you do it. You do it. You watch TV and you're entertained by things which were designed to entrap you in sin. And you just take it in. And you just keep watching it. And you laugh at it. And then you begin to act that way. And soon you're partaking in the same sins that you've seen displayed for you in your entertainment. Or you go to movies or you go to a play. And you, you assign it away as saying, well, it's just entertaining. I don't really believe these things. You need to know the schemes that are laid. Traps that are set. That you would step in them. That you would fall into them. That's just one area. There are many. Listen, some of you are falling to the scheme and the trap of good, honest, Protestant work ethic. You got to work hard in this life. If you want anything, you got to buck up and get it, boy. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps, get it done kind of mentality. And so what do you do? You neglect spiritual things. And you neglect your family. And you neglect the gathering together of God's people. And you neglect the, the ministry that should be going on to your own soul. Why? Because the scheme of Satan around us and the powers of this world is to distract your mind to these things. They can even take a good thing and pervert it. There's nothing inherently wrong with a play or a TV show or a movie. But when it's twisted by the powers and forces of this world, it can be a dangerous thing. Same thing with work. Work is God's purpose for us. This is not this message, but if you aren't working, you need to work if you're a man. You need to get out and do something with your life. Work hard. Sweat. But you never need to begin to work in such a way that you dishonor God and forget God and forget everything else that God has for you in your life. You never need to work as if it's your Savior. That's a scheme and a trap like a pit or a net. Marriage. Again, God designed marriage. It's a beautiful thing. But so many in our day are not recognizing we are in a spiritual war. And so they go into their marriages with all these I had to be careful because we have newlyweds in the room. But all these romantic and, I don't know, you know, songs playing in the background and roses and breakfast in bed kind of images. And then we get married. And he doesn't do any of those things. And she doesn't do, that preacher's been telling me for years, wives submit to your husband. She doesn't ever submit to me. And the war that we fall into is against one another. And that, that the role of God in the marriage gets perverted and is used by Satan and the works of this world to deceive us and to take our souls away from him. Or you have a really good marriage. And she is submissive and you do serve her. And the problem is that that becomes your God. And so your family becomes your God. And that's all you care about. And you just, oh, we just need more family time. 
focus on the family. We need to focus on Jesus and love our families and help them focus on Jesus. And don't let them be a trap to us. I never will forget the first time I read Screw Tape Letters. How many of you have read C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters? Yeah. The businessman. You remember that story in there where the businessman is the, you know, this, this demon has control of this, uh, t- to distract this businessman. And what does he do? He doesn't get him to do anything perverted, anything dishonest. What does he do? He gets him to go and sit in a park and be distracted by all the things around him rather than focusing on Christ. And that's happening to us every day. And I could list them and you could list them on and on. We need to know we're in a war and we need to know the schemes of our enemy. We need to know that this is a real war. And we need to recognize our need as David did. David, secondly in this passage, didn't provoke his enemies. Verse 7, he says, without a cause, twice. Without a cause, they have dug a pit for me. Without a cause, they have set a net for me to trap me and ensnare me. I haven't done anything to these people. I haven't brought this on myself. Some of you are whining in your milk over the fact that you didn't do anything for these bad things to happen to you. You need to understand, the war is happening and you are a combatant. You have a real enemy. He has real foot soldiers. And there is a real doctrine of this age that is trying to take you off the path, whether you do bad to it or not, whether you ever speak of it or not, whether you believe it exists or not. Some of you are believers. You don't believe the dark world exists. You don't believe in demons and such as that. You think that's a spook's tale. I tell you, they're real. You can deny them all you want, but they're real. Just as real as the forces of good and the angels of heaven are real. And they have a plan, and we don't have to provoke them. They are already provoked. They are provoked at our general, our king, our leader, and they hate him and they hate everything about him. And if they can take one from his camp and dismember him, that will please them. And so they see you as a a front. David understood that his enemies hated him. They hated him because he was a representative of God in his day and they wanted to tear him down. David, finally in in this section, calls on God to save him. He calls on God to save him, verses 8 through 10. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he laid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in what? In the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. This prayer is, this recognition is a call to God to save him. I can't save myself. You have to save me. This is a picture of utter dependence in this battle. Not on our abilities, not on our schemes, not on our wisdom, not on our abilities or gifts, but on God and on his wisdom and his abilities and his, his, his saving power. So we have the first section here. But then we have a second section that moves from a battle scene David drives the point home with this prosecution scene. There's a real prosecution against the people of God carried out by those who hate God. Verses 11 through 18 detail for us this prosecution. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. It's bereaved. It's broken. And so in this section, we have the details of an Old Testament trial taking place. And David has been drug out in front of his accusers. And they're accusing him of things he didn't do. And he doesn't even know the people. He's like, I, I couldn't have done the things they're saying. I don't even know who they are. Malicious lies. Gossip being spread. And David recognizes the enemy's, the enemy's slander against him. He recognizes the malicious nature. He recognizes the violent intent of those who are rising up against him. Some of us treat spiritual warfare like it's vacation or rest and relaxation. We became Christians so all the world's troubles would go away. No. You became a Christian that's when the war started for you. Actively. You for the first time, eyes open, now know there's a real war going on here. 
Like David faced these witnesses, we face those who will lie and deceive and slander our name in hopes of tearing us down and again defaming our God. That's their desire. David recognizes their slander. Again, David didn't provoke them. Look at verse 13. They gather around me to lie about me, but when they were sick, I put on sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting on their behalf. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. We don't know the historical reason for this psalm, but we have to understand that at least in this section, he's not talking about outside enemies. He's talking about close associates and friends. Men that should have been on his side had turned against him. And now they rise up in these malicious, slanderous lies about him. And he's looking at them like, are you kidding me? The last time you were on the deathbed, I put on sackcloth, wore ashes, fasted, lost sleep, brought myself to almost death on your behalf. And now you lie about me? David recognizes, look, I didn't cause this. I didn't do anything. We hear in David's repeated refrain, they attacked me, Lord, and I've done nothing to provoke them. We get the sense of Peter, where Peter says, if you're attacked, if you face trial for doing what God would have you do, then you're blessed. But if you do wrong and receive trial, then you're just like the ungodly. And David is saying, making it clear, look, I'm not, in this case, I'm not guilty of anything. I've done nothing wrong. I've even loved my enemies the way the Bible calls us to. I've prayed for them. I've labored in them. I've called them my friends. I've treated them better than my own mother, David says. So in this prosecution scene, we see they lie and slander a man who has done nothing to cause this. And what does David do? He calls on God to save him. Verses 12 through 18 are his call to God to save him. Verse 18 or excuse me, verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the line. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. He calls on God to do for him what only God can do. Save me from my attacks, from these attacks on me. Final scene is there is a great and real deliverance from all attacks against God's people. David recognizes the enemy's gloating over him and his apparent defeat. If you look at verse 19, it says that there's people rejoicing over him. There are those who are winking the eye. They're scoffing and laughing. If you look uh, also at verse 24, it says, uh, And let them not rejoice over me. That word rejoice there is, is, is the equivalent of gloating. Let them not gloat over me, you know. Let them not take joy in what they're doing. Verse 26, let them be clothed with shame who rejoice at my calamity. I don't want them to receive the gloating and the celebration of my defeat. David recognizes that the enemy that has attacked him in a warlike fashion, that has lied about him in a malicious manner, is now celebrating an apparent victory. Because why? David has lost the throne. He's been disbanded. He's pushed out into the wilderness. We win. But secondly, David hasn't provoked them again. Verse 22, you have seen, O Lord, be not silent. Oh, Lord, be not far from me. This is his cry. I haven't done anything. Lord, you've seen it with your own eyes. I have not sinned against these. I have not done wrong to them. Lord, be near to me. And finally, David calls on God to save him. Again, we see this repeated refrain. Awake and arise yourself from my vindication, from my case, cause my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. He calls on God. Let them be put to shame. How? So that they may cry out, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. The righteous will see this defeat of the enemies of God, and they will celebrate God not David, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all day long. So this psalm is beautiful, even though it seems conflicting on the surface. That a man of God would pray that people would be judged seems wrong, but it's so right, isn't it? It's so beautiful the way he handles it. What's the application for us? Can we pray this way? Can we, as Christians, pray this way? First of all, I would warn that we must exhaust 
all grace and all mercy and all kindness in every situation. We must go beyond what we believe feasible to avoid praying a prayer like this. We should extend ourselves until it seems humanly beyond reason before we turn to this. But second, I do believe that in, our, in a careful way, we can pray this way. We can pray this way about the enemies of God. Not, hear me, not about the guy who cuts you off in traffic or whips in your supposed parking place at the shopping mall or the neighbor who cuts down your tree because he thought it was his and now you go out and curse him. No. Over those who are against God, those who have rejected God, those who have turned away, and they have even personally attacked us, we should continue in mercy and grace and kindness to seek them for the sake of the gospel. But there does come a point, and Jesus talked about earlier, when they reject not just you, the message, that you back away, and I believe it is right, that you pray that God vindicate His name. Particularly when you are under a trial specifically trying to stamp out your faith. Those who are martyred often prayed these kinds of prayers. Along with their prayers of praise to God, they often prayed, God, bring your justice on this injustice. And Paul did. Romans chapter 12 is very instructive of us. You just have to read it to really see how it fits together with this puzzle. It doesn't need any explanation. It's beautiful. Romans 12 verse 9 Paul, after talking about giving our lives as sacrifices unto God and having been given gifts and having zeal towards those to, be, to do acts of mercy with cheerfulness, then he says, let love be genuine, verse 9, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. He calls us to hate evil. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Go beyond what seems humanly possible to avoid any judgment coming on any group of people. Serve them and love them and show mercy. And hospitality. But verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You've never done wrong, but they're attacking you for you haven't done it. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably, peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it, give it to the wrath of God. Give place, give room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord, Deuteronomy 32, 35. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Go to the uttermost ends to, a, to bring a person to Christ, but never compromise, listen, the truth of the gospel in hopes of making peace with them. Stand finally knowing you've done nothing to cause their rebellion. You have brought every power of mercy and grace to them. You've shown them hospitality. You've loved them. You've been at peace with them even when they were striking at you with their words or even physically striking at you. But leave space for the vengeance of God knowing that God takes vengeance on those who are against Him. In other words, you may bow your head at that point and say, Oh God, vindicate your name. Bring your wrath upon these people. Not because they've been against me, but because they are against you. As we think about this, I think we can always pray 
this way against the devil and against demons. I think we can always pray this way against the powers and principalities of this age. We don't have to wonder whether God desires to save them. He does not. And we can pray for their sure and fast doom. We can pray that God bring his kingdom perfectly to the earth and that he root out all rebellion and that he end all disharmony and and injustice. We can pray that God finally, having known that we've stood blameless before men, we can pray that God make himself known in his justice. There's coming a day. I told you there's two groups of people in here. There's those of you who are on God's side, therefore you're under attack. And there's those of you who are attacking. And I just want to say to you, though I've primarily focused on those who are being attacked and instructed to Christian, I want to say to you, if you don't know Christ, if you are outside of Him today, I offer to you the bountiful examples of the Bible as to how God treats those who continue in rebellion. Two will suffice. We're studying Jude, and these two I've been studying Two will suffice. There was no city greater than Sodom and Gomorrah in its day. Militarily, financially and economically, politically and socio uh, influence, sociological influence, there was no greater two cities on the planet in their day. They continued in rebellion against God. They continued in their prideful disdain of the ways of God. And God destroyed them with fire and sulfur. And Jude says, if you are one that's living this way, God will destroy you in like manner. One last one, which also Jude uses later in the text. Inside the people of God, there was an apostate named Korah who led a rebellion against God and against God's man, Moses and Aaron. And when he did, God numbered him. God brought him out with his whole family, wife, children's, cousins, uncles, and anyone else that would stand with him. And God opened the earth and swallowed him and closed the earth over the top of him. There's no message stronger in the Bible than that God will judge his enemies. And so if you are on the side opposite of God, I tell you, it may happen today. It may happen a thousand years from now. But there comes a day and I take no joy in your doom. But I do take great joy in the fact that my God will be exalted as blameless and righteous. But I tell you, there comes a day when the great judgment of God will fall as it has never before fallen. Greater than anything we have ever seen. And you will be damned to hell. You will burn for eternity, rightfully so, and you will forever be a burning ember to the justice and glory of God. So that anyone who would dare say God is unjust can simply look at you in hell and say, He's just. There's only one way of escape. There's only one way to know that you're not going to face that doom, and that's to come to Jesus in simple, childlike faith that's to call to him to save you like David did in our prayers call to God to save you in Christ hold on to him in the truth of the gospel by faith not by works not by any mental ascent but by a heart level grasping of him as the only one hope of salvation and I call you to it because I tell you the judgment is coming